Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You're listening to Unaware, written and recorded by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Alan Stone. The neo-soul singer-songwriter that USA Today called a pitch-perfect powerhouse will join us to chat about his career and his process later in the show. Part one. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. It's been uh, it's been a while since we've seen each other, about yeah, a month, I, I think. I think it was last year when I saw you. It was, it was. It might have been last decade. Yeah, it might have been. That was a psh, yeah. psh Yeah, I know. I'm not good at rim shots. Yeah, but, but the joke deserved one. Yeah. Um, so apologies in advance to our listeners uh, here at Songcraft World Headquarters. For, for everything. Which, for, for all, <laughs> everything up to this Just point. Apologies. We're sorry. Uh, no, we're having a little work done at Songcraft World Headquarters today, which is also my house. Yeah. Uh, we're putting in a new heater unit in the attic, and uh, we're also adding air conditioning, which is... In Southern California, the day you decide to add air conditioning, it's a big step. Yeah, it's it's um, kind of a luxury, let's yeah. be honest, man. So, yeah, so uh, living large. It's um, going to be great. I'm, I'm going to enjoy kind of trying to like EQ that sound out of our recordings. <laughs> We've got the AC on behind us. Yeah, it's yeah, be it'll awesome. be fine. It'll yeah. be fine. Um, so we've got some background noise today, but it all just adds to the intimate experience of being here yeah. with us as you listen. Um, but... Enough about the air conditioning and the heat. I need to ask you about something that okay. has been haunting me since the last episode. Uh, we were discussing um, Ray Charles's recording of Little Drummer Boy. Yeah. And you said, you conceded that, like, yeah, it sounds good because Ray Charles sings it, but you right. don't like the song. Right. And you drew a comparison. You said, I don't like Indian food, but if Christy Brinkley cooks it for me. <laughs> Timely reference. <laughs> And I just happened this morning to see an article that mentioned that Christy Brinkley is 65. Yeah. And I thought, I wonder if maybe Paul needs to update his references. <laughs> um, okay. Katie Couric. <laughs> if Katie Couric was cooking me Indian food. How's that? Very timely. Um but then it occurred to me, I'm like, of course, Paul has old references, and I have old references because we're we old, like old stuff. <laughs> well, yeah, it's true, <laughs> right? And yeah. and I think that is why I have gravitated to Alan Stone hmm. because here's an artist who is younger than us by about yeah. a decade, and <laughs> uh, but he is kind of an old soul. Oh, he, he gets it. He does stuff. He he kind of keeps that tradition alive from the 60s and 70s. Um, and, you know, it's interesting to me how music comes to us now. You know, mm. this is not a guy with radio hits, but um, a song like Unaware, which we heard a little of at the top of the show. That song uh, has 11 million views on YouTube. Mm. Now, 11 million seems like a lot of people to me that have encountered this song via a... 
a method of encountering music that didn't even exist <laughs> at right. the beginning of the right. last decade that we just finished. Um, God, that's crazy. And you know, I think I want to just I want to just play a little of that record because yeah. I think it's such a great record. Yeah, man. I mean, if you told me that that came, you know, from if if if, if it was possible to have a new Donny Hathaway record, right? <laughs> <laughs> if it were possible, I I know Donny's dead, but if it were possible and you said that's who that is, I'd be like, okay, that checks yeah. out. Yeah, it, it absolutely uh, has a connection with that era, and I think what I like about Alan Stone is he makes no bones about the fact that as a songwriter, as a creator. He's like, look, I'm an imitator. Mm, yeah. I am trying to pay tribute to what these folks did before. Yeah. And I like that this guy is just like, I know what, where you know my musical love is. I know who the forefathers and foremothers were of the music that speaks to me. Yeah. And I'm straight up like trying to do my best version of that. You know, and I think in a way, I think he was, and I even mentioned in the in the, our conversation, he's a little too humble about it. Um, you know, because <laughs> right. I mean, he is in there working and creating this stuff, and and you know, not everybody can even pull off, you know, sounding like these vintage records. Right. Um, but it's it's great to see when someone recognizes that they owe a great debt. Yeah. To the ones that came before them, which has really com- completely shaped the sound that, that he has now. Right. Right. Um, but it's yeah, it's great stuff. Like I, you know, if I anyone who loves great soul music and sort of feels like oh, I've heard all there is to hear. Yeah. Take a listen to Alan Stone. Yeah. There's Get something some new. Of this stuff. Yeah. There's something yeah. new for you there, and it's it's gonna appeal to that sensibility. Yeah. And check out Christy Brinkley while you're at it. <laughs> <laughs> Part two. Washington State native and Seattle-based singer-songwriter Alan Stone is only in his early 30s, but is already an old soul. Heavily influenced by classic R&B of the 1960s and 70s, Stone and his band built a grassroots following with their high-energy live shows up and down the West Coast. Featuring a handful of co-writes with Andy Grammer, Stone's self-titled and self-released debut album landed in the top 40 on Billboard's R&B albums chart without the help of a major distributor. The album was re-released by ATO Records, and Stone continued to build a national following with appearances on Conan, Jimmy Kimmel Live, and The Ellen DeGeneres Show. His follow-up album, Radius, found the soulful songwriter moving over to Capitol Records. He later returned to ATO for a deluxe re-release of Radius, as well as his most recent album, Building Balance. Featuring the lead single, Brown-Eyed Lover, it's clear why USA Today has called Alan Stone a pitch-perfect powerhouse. Featuring collaborations with British neo-soul mainstay Jamie Lytle, the album features Stone's most intimate lyrics to date. I don't have time, he said, to write about anything that isn't deeply personal. With a recent high-profile gig at the opening ceremony of the Special Olympics in Seattle, viral videos with millions of views, and collaborations with other artists such as Macklemore and Ryan Lewis, the self-described hippie with soul continues to make waves with his rootsy sound and socially conscious lyrics. Alan, welcome to Songcraft. Thanks for having me. Well, so I understand that you were born near Spokane, Washington, and your mom worked as a nurse, and your father was uh, a pastor, which gave you 
kind of a forum to start singing in church, you know, at a, at a very young age. Um, and, and you hear some of that kind of, you know, church gospel influence in your music, but what were some of the other musical influences outside the church that you were absorbing as a kid growing up? Well, there wasn't a ton, really. My, my folks pretty much just listened to, like, contemporary Christian music, so it was um, at least for the first, you know, 10 to 11 years of my life, it was pretty <clears throat> consolidated to Stephen Curtis Chapman and and uh, Third Day and Newsboys, yeah. like these kind of contemporary pop uh, Christian acts. And then right. um, I have an older brother who's he's about four years older than me, and so when he was going through middle school, he started bringing home some some secular records. Uh, you know, in a Christian household, like that's what you call it growing up. Is right. is a, is like secular music. The Verve Pipe and Weezer, um, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Everlast. But when he brought he brought in Cake Fashion Nugget, yeah, right. And I and I really got into that record and pretty much all their their records following. Um, there was just something about the uh, maybe the oblong rhythm mm. of their songs. Um, and Cake seemed like they were just this super odd, funky band that, you know, the bass and the drums, like, spoke to each other. Yeah. yeah. They had a conversation rather than just, like, laying on top of each other all the time. Right. And um, that really connected with me. And, I, and from there, that introduced me to, like, the world of secular music. And... Um, there was just a feeling and emotion and angst in that music that like really enticed me. Yeah. I wanted to search it out and it was like, yeah, it was, I mean, any music lover, once they find like a new artist that they're stoked about, it's the great, greatest feeling ever, especially when it's an artist that has been around for a long time and has a lot of music. Well, yeah, then you feel like, you. I've got 30 albums to, to dive into. This is going to be amazing. Exactly. i got so much, like, this is going to take so much of my time. Right. That's the most exciting for me. So I kind of opened up that door at that point with the secular world and started getting into the police and um, had a big heavy stint with Billy Joel. Mm. I got into Dave Matthews Band like most. Uh, teenage Caucasians did at that point in, <laughs> in, in my life. Um, I never got into Fish, which I think that that's the one, the one that I missed. That seemingly everybody in the mu- musical uh, community that I run run with, they had like a stint in their life where they were <laughs> super into Fish. Right. And then all their friends started kind of making fun of it, and so they were like, "Yeah, I don't like Fish." Anymore. <laughs> There's something so, especially when you're in high school, because when you're discovering new music, and especially if you're kind of coming out of the church world where you hadn't been exposed to that at a younger age, it's like you uncover one rock and there's five rocks, you know, beneath it. I remember being in high school and like being into Lenny Kravitz and finding out that, you know, Lenny Kravitz was into Al Green and Led Zeppelin. So then I go and I get into Al Green and that opens up, you know, a whole bunch of avenues and then Led Zeppelin and that opens up a whole bunch of avenues. There's something so magical about that time in life because you have the opportunity to, to really start digging, um, you know, in, and 
it's really like that period of defining you're beginning to define like, what do I resonate in and how this is shaping me as a creative person or who I will become as a creative person. Yeah, totally. You also have a bunch of new chemicals coursing through your body <laughs> and like everything seems so important. Right. right. Totally. I remember I, over Thanksgiving this year, my mom pulled out like a lot of mothers will have a little box, you know, of all their kids, like the certificates, <laughs> and the pictures and and we were going through it at Thanksgiving a couple of days ago and I remember I'm like man I can't they were, the things that were important to me back then were so important to me right like right. they were I remember getting a haircut like right before my school picture and my mom would always give me my haircut and I had there was this one little piece of hair that was like not cooperating with my <laughs> life and I was so vain I was such a little vain bastard and uh <laughs> And I remember thinking, like, man, that was so important to me at that point in my life. I just had a son nine months ago. And oh, I'm trying to, like, get back into the state of understanding, like, what his life's going to be <laughs> through the first, like, 18 years of his childhood. Yeah. And the things that, like, to me as an adult, I'm like, that is so petty and so lame, and you don't need to worry about that. But, man, did I think that little piece of cowlick was so important. Yep. I think it's, like... Just growing all these new chemicals coursing through your veins. Music was so important to me, and I felt it so much, man. I remember listening to, there was this Christian, like, punk rock label in, in Seattle called Tooth and Nail. Yeah. And they had, um, they had all these, like, really hard, you know, hardcore bands. And uh, oh, what was the name of that? That's MXPX was there. and MXPX, yeah, yeah. that's right. MXPX, that chick magnet, dude. And I remember <laughs> this was a chick magnet thinking that I was the baddest mofo in the neighborhood. <laughs> and now I listen back to that song, and I'm like, what a corny song. You know, like if I heard it now, I'd be like, this is so corny, man. It's right. a joke, you know? Um, your, your taste, your change, your emotion, like everything changes as you're as you're growing older and, and that time in my life music was so special how are you kind of finding your voice as a writer in this time you know um absorbing things that that would kind of fuel your artistry but was part of those chemicals that were coursing through you and the need to express is that part of what drove you to start actually creating dude it was the same chemicals coursing through my veins that like made me super emotional also made me super horny <laughs> and, and the reason why I'm just being honest the reason why I started making music and writing songs was because it, it got girls attention it works um, I wasn't like this oh my like how you know incredible is the art of songwriting <laughs> um, right. like I didn't I didn't really understand it at that point now more so I'm like a I attempt like that's where my direction and my mind is always pointed is like how good can I can I get at this whole thing? Mm. But back then it was just trying to get people's attention. Yeah. You know, especially I was the youngest I was the youngest kid for the first seventeen years of my life. My brother and my sister like both were star athletes and got really good grades and were like the sweetest people alive. We grew up in a really small community, so there was there was one stoplight. There was maybe 200 kids in my whole high school. It was a it was a means towards doing something different from my my brother and my sister that would make people like me. Yeah, and 
and when that happened, it was it was like, oh, this this works. This is like a, this is a thing yeah. that I can. I I'm such a narcissist. I can get all the attention at once. I, I can. <laughs> people will stop what they're doing and they will pay attention to me just because I can pick up an Epiphone and strum out like a one four five and sing. You know, Green Day's "Hope You Had the Time of Your Life," and people will pay attention to me. And so yeah. that that was what it was originally, man. It, and it and I just sort of copied. You know, like I would hear a song that I liked, that I could play, that I knew, you know, like my dad taught me the five, six chords or four chords usually that it took. And then I would mimic it hmm. with, you know, the songs that I was writing for my girlfriends at the time. I, well, I always have this thought that originality sort of comes from uh, attempted imitation. <laughs> that um, even Otis Redding, when he, when he started out, really wanted to sound like Little Richard. Now, he just didn't sound like Little Richard, and his best attempt at sounding like Little Richard came out sounding like Otis Redding. And there we got one of the great original vocalists of all time. Um, and, and I think sometimes, you know, I, I think that we, uh, we disparage um, imitation a little bit too much, because I think when you're coming up as an artist, a creator, a writer, a singer, that's kind, of, that's kind of the best thing you have in front of you, is trying to reach for some other goal. And the fact that you're just, you know, made differently means it's going to come out sounding like you. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's all imitation, really. Yeah. Every, like, everything is imitation. We think there's these huge leaps in development throughout the, you know, the Industrial Revolution. Um, you know, the iPhone. Well, yeah, but how many things needed to be recycled in order for them to even be at a place in history where they could cultivate that invention? Yeah. <laughs> like Jimi Hendrix, right? He... he innovated the sound of an electric guitar mm. but it, if it wasn't for the innovation that came with electricity and amplification and just even the ingenuity that went into a guitar string right. like homie engineered and, and originated it a little bit it's it's all kind of recycled i mean it's it's um not to take any credit away from the real original folk in the world but you know I think I think it's all pretty much recycled. Well, specifically in my case, ain't nothing original that I'm doing, man. I'm <laughs> I'm taking what I've heard and right. what I enjoy and what I like, and I'm and I'm recycling it really. And I'll take, you know, you can call it what it will, but I'll raise my hand and say like, listen, I ain't doing anything. New. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you're obviously a very thoughtful guy. You're a guy who who uh, who processes information, and you spend some time pursuing your higher education. Um, but you, you ended up leaving that behind and heading to Seattle to pursue music full-time. And at that point, we're obviously past what we would sort of consider the Seattle scene, what we sort of know as the, the rock or grunge bands. And your music is cut from a different cloth anyway than what we sort of would normally come to expect from Seattle. So why not New York or L.A. for, for you? Why, why was Seattle the city where you decided to kind of post up? Uh, I got a, I was in Bible college. I was like kind of thinking about be, becoming a worship pastor. Um, and I went to Bible college for a semester, and this was, I had already started to have, like, some discrepancy with the church mm. in general. I, it, there was this, you know, as I was 17, 18, 19, I was starting to be like, this, I don't really know about this. I don't know if this makes sense mm. too much. I imagine this is difficult at Bible college. It was super hard, man. Yeah. But luckily, I had a, I had a, a professor who was he was cool man he he gave it to me as it was yeah 
You know, he's like, look, you have to decide for yourself, especially if you're going to be a leader in a church. Like, you have to decide where that line is. Yeah. You know, do you believe the the principles of this religion in this book, or do you not? And for me, it was like, well, the principles of this book exist outside of the book, Hmm. right? Like, common knowledge has been passed down for generations and generations and generations through natural selection, not through some scripture. Hmm. Like, you don't go kill your neighbor because you don't want to be killed. You don't lie because you don't want everybody, you don't want to feel that everybody's lying to you. Yeah. And so, it was in Bible college that I had sort of, like, made the stand, and I had left the church. Um, you know, I, I told my folks that I didn't believe it. It was kind of like a really hard oh, sure. point in my life. And at that same point, a Christian record label had heard this, like, these demos that I had put out on MySpace. And I was singing, you know, Christian music. Like, a couple of my songs were Christian. A couple of them were, like, safe love songs. And they they wrote me on MySpace, like you used to do back in the early 2000s. Like, hey, I want to do a record with you. You should come move to Seattle. Um, we'll give you a job, like, cleaning the studio, and we'll pay you enough for you to live over here. Um, this guy, Derek Hoyan, which is like, he's still a great friend to me to this day. Um, kind of, he just took me under his wing and he was who, him and this guy, Brandon B got me over to Seattle. So I cut this Christian EP right as I'm leaving the church. And, um, you know, like I, I toured around for a long time with this little EP, um, playing sororities and, coffee shops and barbecues and living rooms um you know probably like two or three years of doing that living in seattle on some friends couches uh and then from there started like learning how to economically be a musician full-time which you know for anybody starting out in music comedy acting anything it's like it's a grind at first. I mean, it's still a grind. Like I'm, st- we all still grind for sure. Yeah. But you know, if I had to like start all over right now and go back to like sleeping on people's couches and and um, you know, couchsurfing dot com, comment it, <laughs> right. I would be like, dude, fuck that. <laughs> I'm gonna go. I'm going to be an X-ray tech, bro. <laughs> Well, what did you kind of have, uh, I mean, in, in 2010 when you put out your first album, Last to Speak? We never picked up your phone. I've been looking for you all morning. You've been leaving me alone. You've been leaving me alone. You've been leaving me alone. You know the reason I'm calling you. You got to explain. That was a, a self-released effort, and, and you obviously, like you say, had been touring around and kind of building up a, a fan base, but um, now we know that that led to some to some great things, but kind of getting back into your headspace at the time, what were your expectations for that first self-released project? Where did you kind of see that going at the time? Well, I mean, if I'm honest, every every single piece of art that I put out, there's always this little thing in the back of your head. It's like, this is going to take me to everyone's living room. This is going to be the thing, you know? Like, I don't know if that's just me or if everybody does that, but 
you know, you're you're in the space and you're working and you're working hard and you're trying to do like what you think is best and what people will like the most and and uh, you put it all together and and all the while in the back of your head there's this little like maybe this will bring me to that next step or mm. maybe this will just shoot me to the moon like maybe this will be my jagged little pill right. you know <laughs> who knows and um, in, rea- in reality I just needed a something to give people hmm. after shows, yep. you know, because yeah. I had this, like, little Christian EP that I was super ashamed of, <laughs> you know, because it was just, like, laden with 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 Christianity stuff. And I was like, I don't want to be a Christian artist. Hmm. I don't, honestly, I didn't want to have to sing songs about Jesus in a bar right. either. So I, I cut this record in Seattle, and, um, and, yeah, I just needed something to sell, like, to give people. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm playing all these shows, I'm... I'm and, and I'm, I need to be amassing these fans. I need to be like, in order for me to, to move from the coffee shop to the 100-cap room in Seattle, which this little room called the High Dive, in order for me to do that, like I need to be able to reach out and contact these people firsthand. Yeah. There's not, there's, it's not like I'm going to poster up downtown and people are gonna be like oh damn hell stone's coming to town (laughs) there's a show like yeah yeah like uh, there's nobody nobody's gonna do that even now i'm like here's the poster um so the cd the email list um you know there's, there's all these like handy ways that uh independent artists starting out do it and now it's so much like online based it's so much about amassing and following online which sometimes it's weird sometimes it doesn't they're not mutually exclusive yeah like amassing a large following online doesn't always sell tickets and selling tickets doesn't always amass a huge following online right um but that was the angle at that point well, that that first album it, it achieved that goal for you. I mean, it got some people's attention, you know. And and your second album, which was called Alan Stone, was then released on ATO Records, and that's really when we saw your career start to hit a higher gear. Um, and you had some really credible players at that time, you know, guys from Raphael Sadiq's band, Miles Davis's band, and then some standout songs like Unaware uh, and Sleep. And when the sun it rises, we don't rise soon, cause I spend my nights howling at the moon. And and both of those songs are are co-writes and and I was sort of looking through the the credits and seeing a lot of solo rights early on and then um, you know you sort of move into this collaboration. I'd like to hear a bit from you about the merits of solo writing versus co-writing and how it's how important it's been for you to kind of surround yourself with the right artistic team. Yeah, the co-writing thing initially started as a means towards just connecting with other people in the music industry. So mm. there's not a huge music industry in Seattle. Um, there's there's musicians and there's people doing it, but it's not like there's a network of songwriters and a network of really cool studios. Um at least that I know of in Seattle. And when I was there, it was like, I'm not really finding anybody here. So what I would end up doing is going down, I would travel all the way down to LA, playing 
shows down the coast. So I'd, you know, I'd start in Seattle. I would play a show that, like, you know, would pay me a thousand bucks, five hundred bucks, and I would take that money and then use it to get all the way down the coast and play markets that, like, I didn't make money in. So, yeah. you know, I would open for somebody in Portland and and then maybe go over to uh, Salem and play a house show and then go uh, down to San Francisco or Sacramento and, like, just work my way down to L.A. And once I got into L.A. Uh, and, you know, started making the rounds of, like, Hotel Cafe, um, there was a room down there in L.A. I'm not sure if it's still there. It was called Room 5. Yep. And it was this little tiny, like, I mean, you could fit 30 people in there. It's actually such a cool room. But I would go and play there as well. Uh, and it was it was really co-writing. It was just a means to, like, getting my name out there and connecting with other musicians in in the marketplace. Um, I mean, the thing for, for me now with co-writing, and I write some on my own, and I write and I co-write a lot. I co-wrote this whole record. Um, now, like, I'm so busy that the time that I have by myself is, like, for my family yeah. um, or resting. Because <laughs> in a calendar year, I've done close to, like, 175 shows this wow. year. Not counting, like, promo and going into radio stations and... Uh, being in the studio, being out of the studio. So co-writing really makes me get in there because I don't want to waste anybody else's time. Right, right. But I, I love to waste my own time. <laughs> you know, I'll pick up a guitar and, yeah. and I'll start strumming something. Oh, that's cool, man. You know, there's a verse there. And then I'll, you know, open up the laptop and I'll watch some you know, tutorial video on editing uh, videos or you know, new plugins for, you know, just wasting time, you know? <laughs> right. But if I'm, in a, if I'm in a studio with somebody else, like, I'm not, I'm so, I'm so terrified about what people are going to think of me yeah. that I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to get, we're going to get a song done. Today, we're getting a song sure. done. Well, there's pressure um, to finish, you know, once you've got somebody else there with you. Yep, and they've got yep, some totally. skin in the game, too. Totally. So that's how the co-writing helps. And it's also, there's better writers than me. There's way better songwriters than me, you know? For so long, I've leaned so much on, like, okay, how loud can I sing? <laughs> you know, like, I'm going to just sing so loud. This is going to be, I'm going to drop people, I'm gonna drop jaws with how loud I can sing. <laughs> and, like, I don't, you know, I forget about the, the the melody of a song, right? And, like, utilizing the full range of my voice. And there's so many things that I forget about. Um, and when you have another, I, when you have another person to bounce those ideas off, uh, it helps a lot, and it yeah. also, like I said, it, it makes me it makes me write. You know, I wrote probably thirty, close to thirty songs for this record, and Lord knows I wouldn't have done that on my own, right? Because <laughs> I would have been like, oh my god, dude, I, oh man, is that new like Netflix series out right now, dude? We <laughs> just dip into that for a second, and then you know, six days later, I still only have like, <laughs> the intro of the song. Well, all that work you were doing, all that touring and all that connecting, the networking, uh, it, it paid off on the Alan Stone record. I mean, it went to top five on iTunes. It was top 10 Billboard Heat Seekers, top 40 Billboard R&B. Um, and then in 2012, we find you featuring on a song that you co-wrote with Macklemore and Ryan Lewis, Neon Cathedral. Underneath this fragile frame 
song's interesting in the way that it, it deals with kind of lost souls finding themselves at the bar instead of the altar. Uh, and we talked a bit about your own faith journey. Uh, I mean, is there some of that in that song for you? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to Ben and Ryan for that song because the idea was already there um, prior to me even getting the call. Yeah. Um, ben had, had wrote two verses and they just weren't stoked about where the song was. So um, I came in, and it was, I mean, it was such, such a cool thing to see how those guys did their thing, man. It's such a cool, hmm. like, rocky story. Um, when I first encountered them, you know, we were playing the same size rooms. You know, we were hmm. playing the, the Crocodile in Seattle, which is like a 500-cap room. And... Uh, they were starting to get some internet buzz. Yeah. And Ben, like, hit me up on Twitter. Man, we, you know, we should, um, would you like to do something together? And I was like, dude, hell yeah, I'd be yeah. stoked to do something with you guys. And I went to their studio, which was literally like a closet. It was a 150 square foot room with a little vocal booth in it. Jeez. And that's where they did the entire, that entire record. I love it. Was there. Um, but anyways, I, I went to their studio, and we they had sort of had the idea. I was thinking, like, you know, obviously Ben was sober at the time. He's like, the, the bar used to be my, my church. Mm. That's where I would go to, like, commune with people. And, and a lot of people utilize it as that. Um, and I like this I, this idea of, of comparing the two. Yeah. Um, you know, the sacrament being substance. And, uh, and so I started kind of thumbing out on the whirly, and uh, and the chorus was kind of birthed from there. And then Ryan Ryan's a real wizard in the studio. You know, he he just chopped up everything. He worked on it for like a month. Hmm. He took everything and like chopped it up and rearranged stuff. And, um, and 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 the way you described that creative process on that song is something that people may not always recognize about how songwriting works. And that sometimes you know somebody will have an idea that's you know. Uh, realized to a great degree, but you really need someone to come and help you get it over the goal line. And even just that, that process of you're a fresh perspective, a fresh voice, a fresh pair of ears, and you, you're able to pop in and just sort of like turn some screws. And then all of a sudden what was an idea becomes a song. Yeah. I've had to learn that a lot uh, on this last record that I just put out building balance, um, relinquishing control and realizing where my strong points yeah. are and, and just wanting the best possible record. Yeah. Like, the goal is the best piece of art possible that cultivates emotion in as many people as possible. Hmm. Um, and it's not like my cool little intro guitar part. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like I've right. had to pull myself out of that yeah. headspace. My, my last record radius, I was so like controlling and everything had to be this way. And every instrument on the record had to be played live and everything like it, it was so, controlling and I got so bent out of shape about everything mm. that just it really soiled the process for me a little huh. bit. Yeah. Um, 
I actually, you know, I want to ask you about that record because uh, from what I understand, uh, you went from ATO to Capitol Records to make Radius, you know, which is a great record. It's got some great songs like um, Love Where You're At. So love where you're at. Yeah, love where you're at. And keep your dirt on the surface and just love where you're at. Wear my sense on my collar so everyone sees. But loving where you were at turned out to uh, not necessarily be Capitol Records. I understand that you wound up leaving the label, went back to ATO, but were somehow able to take that album with you, which is kind of unusual. Uh, you know, a lot of times labels won't do that. They'll just lock them in a vault and no one gets to hear it. Um, I haven't really heard of a, of a trajectory like that. And um, I, I'd love to hear about the process, um, kind of what that taught you about the music business and and being able to kind of pull off the feet of switching back to your previous label, but getting to take that record with you. Well, um, the word leaving a label is a, uh, a, a, a wonderful sound bite, but really just means being dropped. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I was dropped from, from Capitol Records, And, uh, because we are, it's all under the same universal umbrella. Yeah they let me take it to ATO to, to re-release it um, as a deluxe version and add some more songs to it. Yeah, right. Kudos to my manager, Bruce, who I, he really... Not only did he see how like reluctant I was to be the artist that I needed to be on a big, huge label in top 40 radio, he kind of saw that, I think, in me at the time and also saw and heard, you know, from his friends and, and, and confidants around the industry that they had just completely pulled funding and resources away from my project. So, you know, it was him and his ability to get me off that label, to get me on ATO where, you know, it's a smaller label and they actually, you know, helped me re-release that record and get more life out of that, hmm. that album. Um, than I would have had at Capitol. Because, yeah, I, I really have to you know, tip my hat to ATO because they did save me, no. um, allowing me to come back and, and, um, and take it on that record and take it on this next record, this, this Building Balance record. Um, they were, I, to me, this is the best piece of work I've ever come out with. You know, a lot has been made of the fact that you're a white singer with a style reminiscent of soul and R&B. Uh, and much of that music from, from Stevie Wonder to Donny Hathaway to Marvin Gaye, I mean, it deals with social issues like war, economics, politics, and, and does it from an African-American perspective. You know, Stevie Wonder with Living for the City or Village Ghetto Land or Donny Hathaway with some, you know, Someday We'll All Be Free. Um, when I hear a song from you like American Privilege, I hear you giving your own take on the same issues, but through your own lens as a white man. And it seems like for you, the word soul 
means a lot more than just a rhythm or a vocal styling, but that you're actually conveying your own soul and your convictions through your music. How important is that for you? It's the most important. Uh, to me personally, I think that if you don't write what's real, then you tend to become like a carbon, like plastic walking blob. <laughs> um, and, you know, I've, <laughs> you know, I've met very, very famous people before. And I've met some that felt like they were just going through the motions mm. and were completely vacant and vapid. And I've met some that were like super activated. And like, still there. Like I could tell they were still there. That's a human right there, right? Like we have this so many ways to communicate. Yeah. One of the greatest languages is authenticity, hmm. and and you can read it in people. I think. Um, I would imagine that the more out of balance your business is to the art, that you, you change. Yeah. And for me, they're both very, very important, but they're they're equally important. I don't want to sacrifice too much of the art for the commercialization. Yeah. But I don't want, like, just only art. Hmm. Like, I want to be commercially viable. I want people to, to connect to my, my music. You know, the people that I really love and the people that get, get my marbles off are like, you know, the Jacob Colliers of the world and the Corey Henrys of the world and people who are like so like fluent in their musical language. Mm -hmm. um, but the mass public, it's really hard for the mass public, I would, I would venture to guess, to understand that language. Right. Because it's so fluent and it's so far removed from the baseline of, of, of what people can understand. That's why... And that's why pop music nowadays, you listen to like Top 40 radio, it's the same word over and over. <laughs> it's not even like there's like a song there. Right. It's like, okay, what are we doing? Let's sing about mountaintops. Okay, cool. Mountaintop, 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 mountaintop. We top of the mountain. Mountaintop. Mountain. It's like so dumbed down. Right. <laughs> and, it's, and if you look at pop music from, why do you build me up? Buttercup, baby, just to let me down. That's a pop song, yeah. for sure, and that's that can connect to an audience. But there's, for some reason, the the, and I think it's just a pendulum, really. I think the pendulum swings in what's like really commercially viable and what's what's not at the time. Um, but uh, but right now, man, that that language seems to be really dumbed down. I, I think you're right in the the kind of cyclical nature of it, you know, and and I, oh, I and and I I hope that's the case, um, because because you you want to see these, and they're having these movements, you know, um, that where where you see certain types of music with real authenticity, you know, whether it be from an instrumental standpoint or a lyrical standpoint, um, rise up, and and you're certainly a part of what I would call one of those movements right now. Um, and, uh, you know, this year you released your most recent album, Building Balance, on ATO. Um, we talked about it a bit. Um, and and I'm, I'm listening to the lyrics on this record, and, and I'll, I'll hear some little moments that let me know, oh, yeah, this is, this is a true story. I, I can hear it in, in the type of verbiage you use that, you know, they sound really offhand and, and close to you. But then sometimes I'll hear a lyric and think, how is that possible? Like I hear about the girl in Brown Eyed Lover who lets you pick the restaurant. Oh, she's got everything you want. 
I'm a married man, and I'm like, come on, man. Is that a real human? Yo, dude, my wife is vegan, like, to the core. Right. So how can you possibly pick the restaurant? <laughs> she let, Dude, she lets me. My wife cooks me meat. Wow. My wife is so selfless and so loving to me that the, to this day, the best steak I've ever had in my life, my wife made. <laughs> my Amazing. Wife well, and yeah, so that song is about her. And oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Top to bottom, man. Top to bottom. That song is about the, the seriousness of like monogamy mm. on the schedule that I keep. Wow. You know, for so long, I was like, I'm just like, once I started getting busy, like properly being gone and like living out of a suitcase for seven eighths of the year, I was yeah. like, there's no way. There's no way that I'm going to have a functional relationship with anybody who's hmm. not living in the bus with me. Right. And even the people who live in the bus with me don't want to be near, near me because it's like you're such close quarters that it's like, oh, I just, I mean, granted, everybody that I tour with is like my family and we all get along very, very well. But a, a monogamous relationship on the road is... It's an anomaly. Yeah. It's an anomaly. <laughs> And then I met my wife. I met my wife when I was 25. But I was like a foot in, foot out for like a couple years. Hmm. I went to Australia first time on a tour. I met her and then kind of like kept, kept in contact, but we both had partners at the time. Um, my relationship, you know, blew up in a fiery <laughs> pit of dis destruction <laughs> like most of my relationships did um, at that point. And I was like, I got to get out of America. I got to go. I got to get out of here and do go on vacation. I just started like kind of making, you know, enough money to to have like a little bit in my account after the month's end. Mm -hmm. And uh, I called up one of my buddies. I'm like, Man, let's, go to, let's go to Oz, dude. I know this girl. Um, she's got a roommate. This, Melbourne's the coolest city in the world. Let's go. I remember on the flight, like, looking at him, being like, here's a scoop, dude. I kind of got a thing for this girl, but you as my friend cannot allow me to fall in love with her on this trip because <laughs> that is the dumbest thing that you could, I could ever do is not only fall in love with a girl this, like, close to, you know, ending a relationship, but also falling in love with a girl from Australia, literally the right. farthest away <laughs> that anybody could ever be, and the most annoying thing in the world <laughs> as far as immigration and <laughs> phone bills and right. time zones. I'm like, do not. Absolutely. And of course, like he did not help me out well, this at is all. The, that's I the toughest like wingman that. assignment I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> It was yeah. tough, dude, but he failed miserably. <laughs> he failed miserably. It's um, amazing. And uh, I was like, shit. <laughs> um, well, you know, <laughs> all right, let's try it. Let's try to be monogamous and, and, and see what happens. And I was still kind of a foot in, foot out for so many, two, two and a half years, really. Mm. And Brown, I love her. That song that you're speaking of is really like that dilemma in my yeah. head, which is like, Oh my God, this is the greatest woman I've ever met. I'm never going to find anything better than this. But also, um, I'm married to this craft, and this is how I make a living. Mm. And not first priority, but it's at least a priority. And that priority is going to keep me away from being around this person, yeah. uh, which is going to potentially 
hurt them. And and music was here first. And music was here first, and it's like, I mean, music was around when I was 15, yeah. dude. Like, music's my best friend. Um, and also, like, I don't know how to do anything else, bro. I'm not going to go back to DeVry <laughs> and, like, learn how to, you know, like, code. Right. <laughs> I'm a songwriter. <laughs> That's, like, it. And I don't even do that very well. You know, so, so I'm not going to... I'm not gonna like, go back and do it again. Um, you know, Brown Eyed Lover was like my my attempt at writing like a real honest love song, mm, right? Um, yeah, because to me, there's so there's like either like I fucking hate you, you're a bitch, you know, like <laughs> go kill yourself, sort of love songs, like romance songs, and then there's like, oh my god, the world is the cloud nine, like right, everything's yeah. amazing sort of love songs and I'm like love is not that right like, and that's what frustrates me so much about you know for so many years about R&B music specifically it was like it was either songs about the club songs about sex or these like wishy-washy romance songs right or Break a song. Well, that's what's so incredible. You, you go back and hear a song like God Only Knows by the Beach Boys, and the first line is, I may not always love you. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that's in, that's intense. Yeah, it's honest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, Give You Blue is is another one of the great songs on Building Balance. When the storms It's got that classic soul vocal that you do so well, but there's also this kind of shimmery texture to the production and the the instrument choices, you know, are not on that song, you know, a a throwback to kind of the tried and true uh, playbook, you know, the vintage R&B sound. Um, As a songwriter, you have this amazing instrument, which is your voice, uh, that just naturally comes out with this classic rich R&B kind of thing as a writer do you have to kind of deliberately challenge yourself to seek out new instruments or or new production values or new methodologies to surround that amazing voice and kind of cast it in in different lights whether than necessarily going with what might be the automatic first choice yeah for sure um in a, in a risk to like constantly make the same music, you you really have to pull from from different color palettes, mm. so to speak. Um, and for me, that means like working with with other producers. You see, I don't I don't produce the music. Mm. I write the music. I sing. And I, I guess technically I would produce the music because I'm like, I don't like that, I like that. Right. But, like, finding sounds, um, Jamie Liddell produced a good amount of this record, and then um, Jeremy Most produced that specific song, Give You Blue. And those guys are wizards. Mm. I mean, those guys are so hip when it comes to what works well together, what sounds well together. I'm the, what I think my strong point is, is, is 
Nope. <laughs> yep. <laughs> nope. It's like, oh, that's really cool. Keep going there and yeah. encouraging people. But like, you set me in front of a Moog and be like, cool, find the sound you want. Right. I'm, dude, I'm lost. Right. Like, I don't know how those, I don't know how the filters work. And, and, and that's, you know, that, that to me is the power of collaborations. You have sure. to surround yourself with people who are really talented. I've had the luxury of, of doing that with the people in my band as well. You know, I'm yeah. not a player. I'm not a good musician. Um, but I've had the, the luxury of having really talented musicians around me who have who helped me grow as a player, as a singer, um, as a performer. Mm. Um, and it was same thing, like recycling what other people do. You know, if you're listening to Stevie Wonder records and, and mimicking the the runs he was doing or yeah. the progressions he was doing on you know quarterly. Um, I'm really good at that. So I'm a really good imposter, I guess. <laughs> Maybe like to, to bring that down to, to basically, I'm a really good uh, stealer of other people's hard work. Um, but uh, when it comes to like new sounds and, um, and and playing with new colors, you know, I'm I'm constantly listening to to new music as well and and things that strike me uh, and that I appreciate. I'm like, I don't. I want to redo that in the song. I want to, I want a record that sounds like that. Yeah. Well, you're, I, I would probably say you're a little too humble in that area. I mean, you're, you're a great artist in your own right. There, there's a thousands of fans out there that would, that would agree with me. And, and I count Scott and myself among those fans. We uh, really appreciate the fact that you took the time to talk to us today, to share some of your story and, and your process with us. So thanks a lot for, for spending this time with Songcraft, man. Appreciate you, fellas. Thanks for your time, and, and thanks for uh, letting me share my story. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment now to subscribe to Songcraft in your podcast app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. Every-